Hi, everyone. It's Jivana. I just want to come on for a moment and thank our sponsor, Offering Tree. They're an all-in-one, easy-to-use, community-backed business that saves you time, energy, and money as a yoga teacher. Offering Tree allows you to create a website in less than 30 minutes. Plus, you get a discount through Accessible Yoga. Just go to offeringtree.com backslash accessible yoga to get your discount today. Okay, here's our episode. Welcome to the Love of Yoga podcast. I'm your host, Anjali Rao. This podcast explores the teachings of yoga for self and collective transformation. We dive into how spirituality and philosophy can ignite social change. I share conversations with folks who are on the front lines of justice and liberatory movements, thought leaders, change makers, and healers. Hello and welcome to the Love of Yoga podcast. I'm your host, Anjali Rao, and this is uh, the second podcast of 2024. I'm super excited to have with us today Fariha Roshan, who is a multidisciplinary artist, a Muslim queer Bangladeshi who is interested in the margins, liminality, otherness, and the mercurial nature of being. I love that. Fariha. Mm -hmm. her, her work has pioneered a refreshing and renewed conversation about wellness, contemporary Islam, and queer identities, and has appeared in the New York Times, Al Jazeera, The Guardian, Vice, Village Voice, and others. She's currently the deputy editor of Violet Book, sits on the advisory board of Slow Factory. I highly, highly recommend for everyone to go check that out and frequently writes essays on her Substack from everything about comparing yourself to others, short and fraud, and the deeply profound film, Saint Omer. Faria has published a book of poetry entitled How to Cure a Ghost, a journal called Being in Your Body, and a novel named Like a Bird, which was named one of the best books of 2020 by NPR, Globe, and Mail, Harper's Bazaar, a must-read by BuzzFeed News, and received a starred review by the Library Journal. Upon the book's release, she was also profiled in the New York Times, her first work of nonfiction, Who is Wellness For?, an examination of wellness culture and who it leaves behind, was released in 2022. And her second book of poetry is Survival Takes a Wild Imagination, which is Outfall of 2023. I'm so excited to have you with us, Fariha, and um, share your prolific work with the listeners as well as your wisdom and your voice. Um, just a very, very warm welcome again. Thank um, you, I wanted to just invite you first to just lead us through your journey into the work that you do as a multidisciplinary artist, author, a thought leader in so many ways, and a Bangladeshi queer femme Muslim um, who's who's doing such amazing work. So could you just lead us through briefly where how you began and where you are now? Um, firstly, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I feel incredibly honored when I get to have conversations with 
other South Asians. It, it's actually deeply moving to me to have these kinds of conversations, as we were saying, off mic, Adda, to be yeah. able to have Adda with people is, is really beautiful. Um, my journey uh, to where I am, um, I was born in Canada. I um, moved back to Bangladesh, uh, which is my parents' home country, when I was four and a half because mm -hmm. um, of my father didn't want to live in the West. He hates the West. And so we, our whole plan was, you know, he was doing his urban planning uh, PhD at the University of Waterloo. So I was born there. So we, we immigrated, my sister and my mother immigrated with my dad in the eighties. And then in the nineties, uh, in 1990, I was born. And then I, um, we went back to Bangladesh and then because it was so dangerous to live there, um, because my dad had, has, has very socialist Marxist values and, uh, Bangladesh was increasingly becoming fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. um, there was just a backlash and there was a lot of danger for um, educators um, who had very left beliefs, mm -hmm. um, leftist beliefs. Um, so we left and we moved to Australia. And I was raised really predominantly in Australia. And I would feel, I would say even to this day, I don't really say I'm Canadian. I say I'm Australian. Um, I don't feel Canadian. I feel Australian. And I, I it's a very specific locality, geography. Um, it's a specificity that, that not everybody understands because it's so isolated. Mm -hmm. And it's also like this landmass that's largely not been colonized. So it's different. It's a different kind of energy. It's a different kind of space. It's a different kind of landscape. And I really think that Australia as a geography had a huge form formation for me as a person and as a thinker and as a writer. I think that this, the severity of not just like my upbringing, because I was raised in violence, but within violence, um, I, I really focused on um, the world around me. I wasn't allowed out. I didn't really have a social life. I was very popular at school, but I was very strange. Um, and I, I didn't have like close friends. I didn't have friends that I could really have close contact with because I didn't have a phone. I didn't have, I wasn't allowed. I had to go to school and come back mm -hmm. and things were timed. So I had to come back at a specific time. If I was a little late, if I was five minutes late, my mother would be extremely angry and violent. <clears throat> so like my sister and I, my father and I, we all kind of stayed between the seams and within the seams of the mm -hmm. family and like very much like everything that was controlled and ordained by my mother, we did. Otherwise we didn't do anything. And in that way, I think that that had a huge impact obviously in how I am how I perceive the world how I see life um and I think that like much like the title of my second book of poems and it was born out of this feeling of like as I when like a bird came out I wrote it it was published when I was 30 I started writing it when I was 12 it took me 18 years to write I didn't consistently write it throughout the 18 years but it took me 18 years to write it's kind of insane that I did that and I felt deeply 
angry at the writing world because I felt as if I wasn't getting the acknowledgement or the 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 platform or like I wasn't getting anything for it you know I wasn't getting a pat on the back you know and I really felt as if if I was like a white man who went to Harvard and I wrote that book I would have had a very very different experience I would have been a prodigy I would have been so many other things that I was I didn't get, I didn't get those things. And there's a part of me, whether it's because I'm an immigrant, whether it's because I'm abused, whether it's because I'm a a woman, whether it's because I'm a fucking South Asian Muslim woman, you know, like I never received the acknowledgement. A lot of my abuse was that this, like this withholding of love, withholding of abuse, uh, withholding of care, sorry. And, and only being met with abuse and, I think all of those things, you know, forced me to one, start writing a book at 12 years old, but really to start, I think, considering myself an artist and considering myself as somebody who had something to say. Mm -hmm. I was never given that opportunity through education or through like formal, you know, formalities. Like, you know, I I was raised right or I had the right networks or like I didn't, I I don't have any of that. And I say that often because I think, one, I really want to encourage anyone who's listening that has a story to tell, to tell it and to feel we all exist in so much insecurity. If I can be a moment of security, then I would like to be that. But, you know, I really felt from a very young age that I had something to say. Mm-hmm. And it's probably because of my very exceptional circumstances that nobody else was acknowledging. Mm-hmm. And so I had to either like write it down and with like a bird, everything is uh I'm I'm the main character, but I'm also all of the characters. I'm Talia and all of her her surroundings. And um, you know, like everything that I was experiencing, she became a pocket almost for that experience, for that a feeling, for that emotion. I didn't have words for that I was sexually abused as a child, but I knew something was wrong. And I knew that something was off. I knew that I wasn't like other people Mm. and that was very apparent to me from a very young age and I think all of that really you know all of these ingredients you know and and really also like having a father that's deeply politically principled and then Mm. having a mother who's like quite devious and Mm. and and repugnant and ugly and um mean mean spirited human being and I don't think that that's all she is but that's all I kind of experienced of her as a mother and that really formed who I am and who how I write how I think about the world like my Mm -hmm. mom is the main character and everything that I talk about um Mm -hmm. well Thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm just sitting with whatever you've shared. And it's, um, you know, I always think that we always go to the, the, the quote unquote, the lighter things that form. Uh, but it's actually the, the shadows that actually mm. form our, uh, form our inner world in so many mm. ways. And that really informs our inner world and shapes mm. our inner world and looks like it has, you know, sounds like it has done that for you and what brilliant excavations and manifestations of those 
that shadow work that you have done that is formed by your lived experiences that has created uh, the work. So I appreciate you sharing it. I'm really grateful for that. Um, and and I also want to like take in take what you said about you know the immigrant experience and how much that informs who we are as as a, as a people and each of us have different uh, you know experiences with that um not all immigrants have similar experiences of course but but there is there are some certain threads that runs through and one of that is the feeling of that we are not enough to write to express mm. to take take up space if you will um and and seems like you had that feeling that you have something to say which is important and valuable at a very young age has that changed for you as you've grown older and as you have gained more experience and held space for others has that changed and evolved for you yeah i think like when i started when i moved to the us i became i mean i was all i was probably already insecure but some insecurity just kind of there was something about the United States mm. where I felt incredibly, because um, I left Australia because I felt like a big fish in a mm. small pond, you mm. know, not because I was like flashy or anything, but because my ideas were too big and I was just right. too big, you know, they couldn't contain me. So I wanted to live in a country where I could feel challenged by myself. Mm. You know, I really want, I really want to ascend as a human being and you know us for the for the for better or for worse america really like you know i think quelled something inside of me made me smaller and more afraid and i think it has a lot to do with the fact that there's no like no, you know especially when i moved here like 2009ish there wasn't any kind of comprehension about what a south asian person is there was no, there was, we just weren't, we just didn't exist. We yeah. were just sort of invisible, yeah, completely invisible. Yeah. And I, I felt as if I had to be silent, you know, I think that like, oh, you know, also educating yourself, realizing that, you know, this country is established on such horrifying realities and, you know, anti-blackness is so present in our society that I also often felt as if I couldn't speak because my voice wasn't, you know, marginalized enough almost. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and there were situations also, I should be completely honest, where I've been silenced and mm -hmm. I've been shut down. I've been canceled. I've been, you know, I've experienced a lot of weird things on the internet being a person who's vocal. And I think all of that kind of made me smaller because I've been writing publicly for a long time now. Mm -hmm. And like throughout my 20s and through from a, a very and I was on the internet sort of like the internet formed me because I so it was so isolated. So mm -hmm. I didn't really have a lot of like people skills when mm -hmm. I came when I moved here. I was very naive and I was just, I think, like very open in ways that I really like about myself, but it was not good in the situations that I was in. Mm -hmm. Um experienced a lot of manipulation and um I don't know it's just I think that that's caused me to feel a lot of imposter syndrome I've mm -hmm. developed a lot of like my because I feel people's feelings when people are judging me I feel like it's a reflection of me and mm -hmm. 
that I'm actually at fault. And that's Mm -hmm. also the workings of my abuse. So I've had to do so much work to be like, people can think whatever they want of me. It doesn't matter. I have to be okay in myself. And that is an everyday journey. And yeah, so. Hi, everyone. I just want to pop in here really quick and remind you about our sponsor, Offering Tree. As yoga teachers, we are our own business managers, website designers, and producers. It's a lot. And Offering Tree offers an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to succeed while we're doing all the things. And I'd just like to say that through this partnership with the Love of Yoga podcast, Offering Tree has shown that it's committed to supporting accessibility and equity in the yoga world. Offering Tree is a public benefit corporation, and they're driven by a mission of wellness accessibility, which we share with them at Accessible Yoga. As an Offering Tree user, you'll get uh, to join a supportive educational community, and you'll also get free webinars with top experts in wellness and entrepreneurship. And of course, you get a discount. So go to offeringtree.com backslash accessible yoga to learn more and to get your discount. Okay, let's go back to the episode. 100%. That sort of reaffirmation and sort of a reclamation is an everyday practice. And and for those of us who have experienced any level of uh, abuse or trauma, that's even more compounded. So Mm -hmm. I I understand that. Um, And thank you for sharing that. I'm sure the listeners also would are are appreciative of your uh, courage in naming so many things. Um, I want to take I want to take a moment to also acknowledge, you know, the the horrendous politics of the United States and how it has impacted all the world and what's going on in Gaza and Palestine. Um, some of the things that I often hear from people is that we are, because we live geographically so far away, what can we do? Is there anything that we can do which is actually effective? Um, what are some of your thoughts in in that? How can we really be in solidarity? Uh, we can decolonize and we can actually do the work in ourselves to to remove ourselves from the shackles of capitalism and and colonialism and just imperial ideas. Western imperialism. Mm-hmm. We can remove ourselves, you know, like the more I learn from about India, the more grief I feel about myself and my family because we were stripped away from that. That mm-hmm. kind of cultural, economic, like the way that India was before it was colonized was on it, it was like Disney princess <laughs> beauty, you know, and like yeah. the the, the I think of the land also. I think of like when I go to Bangladesh, it there's dust everywhere and the, it's hum, humid and the land is not arid. It's not supposed mm-hmm. to look like that. It's a, it was actually once so fertile and green and my father yeah. remembers that time. So it's not that distant in our memory and I grieve that I will never know the land that I'm from and I feel a mm-hmm. deep resentment that I have to do something about. And I think that everybody needs to get there. They need to be pushed into a place of like, no, you actually can't be watching idly anymore. Mm -hmm. Like now it is your responsibility, how you function within capitalism. And I think like very simple things like Palestinians on the ground are telling us every day how to exist. Right now we're in a, we're in a boycott from January 21st to January 28th. 
we're in a boycott. You know, like it's just trying to exist as much as we can outside of the realm of capitalism. And uh, I, I, I've been in uh, sort of this uh, group called degrowth. It's not sort of, it's a group called degrowth. It's an international movement. Um, and I write about it in who is wellness for there's a chapter about degrowth, the end and degrowth. So much of the philosophy is that, you know, we actually as a society have to start pairing back. We have to start, um, consuming less essentially mm -hmm. in every way. And I think boycotts are a really beautiful yep. beginning of that, you know, of like, untethering yourself like you know all the things that we know um about recycling composting um you know working with the land like actually existing with the land having a relationship with the land um mm -hmm. as californians we're lucky we get so much access to the land but there are more and more ways that i want to be in the land i want to learn how to farm i want to you know learn how to be with the earth i want to learn how to cultivate it um mm -hmm. And learning that these are, are like responsible, um, like our responsibility as human beings. And I think as settlers, um, you know, what is the United States um, really existing? And I think this is in, in any space, really, but like working with indigenous folks, like mm -hmm. having a direct relationship um, and like also having a direct relationship with the global South you know, having, I know more and more people are going back to where their parents or their grandparents were from and, and yeah. trying to, I know so many people, so many of my friends that have lived in India, so many of my South Asian friends that have lived in India, and it's more accessible now than it ever was before. And, and honestly, like we know, like we're seeing, we're seeing what's coming out of these countries. It's exciting to be like, what they didn't want us to be, we can slowly start returning to this original kind of blueprint of who mm -hmm. we were outside of uh, European colonization. Mm -hmm. um, and that's our responsibility to do that work. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. I think, uh, I think anti-colonial, like you talk about, you know, and I wanted to bring that in also, um, co-creating anti-colonial spaces of care. I mean, more than a buzzword, what does that really mean? What does that really look like? How can we manifest that together? Uh, how can we really define ourselves beyond the colonial gaze, which we have? I mean, I grew up in India. So I grew up in India. I just came back from India like less than three days ago. So I'm just really jet lagged right now. Mm. But um, I, I see right now there's such a juxtaposition of like a, a pride in, in what has hap what's happening, the economic, the cultural, the boom, so to speak, in India, mm. um, as well as, you know, the Hindutva sort mm. of the uh, usurping of that that pride. And, you know, it's a, it's a very complex sort of... Mm -hmm phenomenon which is happening in India so but and I, I think we need to also hold this tension with how do we create that um, identity or actually reclaim that identity of being uh, being outside the colonial gaze how do we create something outside the colonial gaze what are your thoughts on that I know you you've written a you know books and articles on that so I really want to see hear from you what what are some of your uh, vision and learnings from that? 
think, uh, like thinking outside of the colonial gaze. Yeah, like for for especially is we the people who are listening here are typically yoga practitioners or yoga teachers. And though yoga is far more than just wellness, but it is a part of the wellness sort of practices. Mm. Um, so my question is, how do we build spaces of care which are intentionally anti-colonial? Mm. I mean, with yoga practitioners, it's like, how, do you have relationships directly to India? Do you have relationships on the ground with people that you're working with? I've always felt like it was uh, kind of slimy that, you know, yoga studios charge $150. Well, now it's way more, but like, you know, yeah. for, for, uh, for information that is not theirs, you know, mm -hmm. information that they, who knows where they got that information from or, you know, but, you know, this like this desire, this Western obsession to commodify, mm. to commodify everything. Mm -hmm. um, and we're here. So what do we do with it? I think that we have to have responsibility to where these um, to where this information comes from. And and really, I think trying to create relationships with uh, non-castist, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like spirit, like deeply spiritually, um, reverent and active places in India, where, which I know exist and, mm -hmm. and, and have existed for the literal existence of, you know, Brahmanism and, yeah. and like, you know, supremacy and Hinduism. And yeah, I, I, I think that there's, there's a lot of space for us to start imagining what that looks like what does it look like to be responsible I think that that's what we're asking ourselves what does it mean to be principled as people mm -hmm. um we've never we've always been told that this is the status quo this is just the way that things are right and for the first time in the history of mankind of humankind we're realizing that that's a hoax and mm -hmm. like that that actually that's not true and the people have the power with a majority and so how can we unify and i think that like groups like or like hindatvas and like the hindatva movement rather and like um and the desecration of of like of humanity that fascism is and fascism mm -hmm. just like you mm -hmm. know it appeals to, I watched Cast last night by Ava DuVernay mm -hmm. and, you know, there's a, there's a whole section on India and, and mm -hmm. Ambedkar. I, I was weeping, you know, watching Ambedkar um, just be like acknowledged in a Hollywood film. It was like, oh my yeah. God, it was so beautiful, honestly. Um, yeah. But, you know, this idea of I kind of lost my 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 plot. Um, but I think I was just talking about the way that past has just been do you, were you gonna remind me? Yeah, no, you were talking about uh fascism and mm -hmm. uh caste and how those have also formed um and how we can how we can be in solidarity with like for example caste abolition and be anti-colonial and have i think that's where you were generally yeah. going yeah that, that that these 
then actually that is how we need to do it. We've been showed a dirty, dirty method, you know, sort of like the mafia methods of this is how you do it. You know, like this is, (laughs) you just have to, and now we're actually being forced to reckon with ourselves and, Mm. and mass reckon with ourselves. Like I know that, you know, as just the same thing that Trump has done in America or like the way that white supremacy Mm -hmm. is utilized, you always target the poor, you target, you know, you target the people who have every right to feel angry, which is Mm -hmm. why class solidarity is so important. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think leftists or liberals actually care enough about class solidarity, Mm -hmm. but it's actually so significant to you know, to, to, to acknowledge that this isn't a corrupt system for everybody. So if we, so agree. if we have to, if we want to change one part of it, we have to change all of it. And yeah. that is actually exciting to me. I think that that's where we're, we're heading. I think it's inevitable. I think that humans are, is and, and Gaza, what's happening in Gaza, what's happening in Palestine is a perfect example of mm-hmm. where we, we, there's too many witnesses now. Yeah. That's so true. There's just too many witnesses. It is and, so true. You know, we we are fed up and we are understanding that our governments don't care by and large, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. My dad's been saying this to me for decades. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. It doesn't matter. Because a liberal person is always going to end up uh siding with the oppressor because they want the status quo. And mm-hmm. so what does it mean to be revolutionary in this time? I think a lot of people mm-hmm. unlearn whiteness, you know, mm-hmm. all of us, we, we're all guilty of it. And mm-hmm. whiteness is, an, is a method of extraction. That's to me what whiteness is, you know, mm-hmm. like I don't actually think whiteness is just racial. It's mm-hmm. beyond racial. It's, it's, an, it's, it's an identity. It's, it's a belief system. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of us need to unlearn that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in your in your bio, I read uh, liminality is a big part of your work, and and that is one of my favorite things to talk about because I think it's not often understood and not often tapped into as an actual uh, process of evolution of transform, you know, of unfolding rather. Mm-hmm. Um, so, can you talk about? And yet, people are always very sort of not not only just skeptical but wary of that space of not knowing of of transition um and i wanted to ask you what what are some of your first of all why is that word in your bio because that is a very uh, key word and um the fact that you put put it right up in the first paragraph itself shows that you're really interested in inquiring about it so tell me why that is so important to you I love that you noticed that. Um, <laughs> it must mean something to you too, then, as you said. Um, I mean, liminality, I think if we all lived within the strangeness of it all, or the in-between, the mercuriality of it all, and we understood the layers, if our human minds, which I think we are designed to do, I think we're far more... Um, capable than we allow ourselves to be Mm. if we were able to just hold the multi-dimensional state of all things i think we would just be more evolved Mm -hmm. um because we we are such binary thinkers that everything's this that that good um 
And it's actually limiting, mm -hmm. you know, it's limiting us, it's limiting others, it's limiting society. You know, I think also just like in terms of socialization and, and, you know, like I was raised uh, really, you know, I turned 11 on, uh, on in 2001. So 9-11 was a huge part of my like understanding and awareness of myself as a Muslim person. Mm -hmm. And so socialization is so key. If you tell people that they're bad, they're going to think that they're bad. Yep. And then that's either going to cause them to do bad things or it's going to cause them to hate themselves. Either way, it's poison. Yeah. And I just think that, you know, what we're also seeing is the propaganda machine, the machine that tells us this is bad, this is right. good. Right. Um, and that's not liminal thinking to me. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's binary thinking and it's uninteresting. I'm just mm -hmm. bored of it. And... Mm -hmm. Anyone who wants to meet me there, who can like meet me in conversation and can meet me, I'm just way more interested in, in that than anything else. You know, mm -hmm. like I'm not here to be right. I'm not here to prove myself of anything. I'm not really right. interested in that. I want to know what you think. And, you, you know, like it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's an exchange, the adda of it all. Like it, mm -hmm. we've, we've lost that. And actually they like, I was just, I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but I'll bring it back. You know, I think about how like st Starbucks and is like the only place that's open late. They don't really let coffee shops like be open late. There's not a culture here for that. Mm -hmm. I, I, at least I don't feel like it is. Whereas like in Bangladesh, that's a, that's a thing because right. people are, they're talking, they're right. exchanging ideas. And they, I think, I don't remember where I, I heard this, but you know, in the U.S., they've really done that specifically so people don't radicalize, so people don't have communion, so people don't exchange ideas, so they don't, you know, class, again, goes back to class, there's no relation. You know, everything's about keeping us in a little tiny box where we exchange, you know, like this, like robots, mm -hmm. but, you know, we're actually very expansive, as mm -hmm. humans and so it's our it's just our responsibility i think to to be there at all times mm -hmm. just to be in that expansiveness mm -hmm. i don't know if that answered your question but it, it did it did um and i i've never really thought about that that you know yeah you're right coffee shops and meeting places are not really uh open late not beyond the work day and there is a certain amount of you know time and, exactly. and you're absolutely right in India also like Bangladesh we could so many places are available to meet yes. uh, people and again it's changing in the bigger cities because of because of capitalism and right. all of the things all of the things that right. you mentioned so uh, and I think that's a big part of wellness also you know like the collective wellness that building of community that relationship building relationality mm -hmm. with you with within the within the system um which brings me to the question of your book the you know who is wellness for um like i said yoga is a big part of the wellness sort of paradigm though it's more than that uh what would what were some of your thoughts in writing the book what is the feedback that you've received? What is the process that you have gone through to, you know, um, to write this book? Because I think it's a very important question that you're asking and you've delved into in the book. 
Thank you. Um, I also wanted to add that like the only places that are available for us to like go and hang out in is like bars. Bars, you know? yeah. So it's like again, you you can so you, you can't really exchange ideas when you're exactly drunk. exactly. So it's like and and re- revolution can't be made in those places because you're not lucid. Yep. So I just totally so, it's wild. Um, yeah. Uh, who is wellness for? I I. Um, the journey of it, you know, I, I started kind of thinking this question in 2014, 2015, because I was going through my own mental health journey, which I write about. And, um, it just made me really question all of a sudden, just like this feeling that I'd never really voiced, which was why has yoga been capitalized by the west like this like how is that allowed mm-hmm. I, I like very am very grateful that my dad like had introduced me to someone like Vandana Shiva very young so I was very aware mm. of like of like just um uh, intellectual property you know mm. and like and, and the debate over who gets to own something Mm-hmm. And especially when you're being colonized, who, what is whose, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that all I really wanted to do, and then I ended up doing more, was that I wanted to just like show people that this is a very unjust system, especially mm-hmm. because 450 million Indians live under the, below the poverty line, the human mm-hmm. rights poverty line. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's more less than the U.S. poverty line, right? It's yeah. it's it's the world's global index, and it's so it's just like so it's like a dollar a day. It's crazy, you know. Like it it's it doesn't make any sense. But this is a billion dollar right. yoga is a billion dollar industry that is not owned by Indians. Yeah, it just didn't make any sense to me, and mm-hmm. it didn't make sense that white people had created yet again another system, another way. And this goes back to, you know, like India, every year that India was colonized, uh, it was taking out $40 billion worth of resources yep. um, from India. This is from Dadabai Muraji. That's his statistic. So $40 billion dollars worth of resources for over 200 years mm-hmm. that's what we're thinking so yeah. just that the, that's that and like that's not even in, in, like the last 100 years yeah. now we've got billions of dollars still in another way being funneled out of india not put back into the economy not put back into the people not put back into the communities not put back into protecting and making sure that the people who who this culture, this faith, this spirit is from are taken care of that Mm. bare minimum. Why is that not a consideration of the West? How can you call yourself developed? How can you call yourself enlightened and not think that that is a responsibility that you fucking have? Mm. It, 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 it annoys the shit out of me still <laughs> this day. I'm, I'm, and I, I'm writing about it didn't help. I'm still, whenever I talk about it, I'm just like, cause I, it's, I, I do think shaming is useful. And I think mm. that 
why people need to hear this very quickly, not mm -hmm. to be shamed into, oh my God, what, but in to be shamed into doing something about it. We all mm -hmm. have shame, mm -hmm. all of us. And then shame is a very useful experience. And I think whiteness mm -hmm. has, has uh, you know, like it's, it's a, uh, distills that feeling because mm -hmm. everything is yours. Mm. Of course, what do you mean? What do you yeah. mean? This? Yeah. That is that is whiteness. Yeah. It is not yours. And if we can share it, absolutely. And Indians mm. do want to share it. That, that's Indian culture. Indians are not prophetizing. They're, that's not, that was not the, that's why all of these nations were able to be colonized. They, they, mm. they accepted it to a certain degree. They accepted the invitation. They didn't accept the abuse or anything that comes with it, but they accepted the invitation in a lot of ways. And I think that we um, we gave parts of our society away unknowingly mm -hmm. and um, in hope for something more. And what colonizers do is that they just, just want it all. They mm -hmm. don't want to share any of it with you. You know, there's mm -hmm. no equal trade. They want to manipulate you into thinking that you are you are unworthy and therefore it is theirs. Mm. And I just wanted to point that out. I just wanted to say, this is very, this is a very unequal system mm -hmm. and I don't agree with it and I don't like it. And I do, I think that um, we have to stop this and it's mm. our responsibility to stop this. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that, uh, you know, I just came back from India, like I said, and it, I always find it um, sort of, um, I don't know what the word is, but disheartening sometimes to see the the whole commodification of yoga being replicated in India. Like you go there and you see big billboards of power yoga and the gym culture and all of that. It's it's just wow. the importing, yeah. It's just the importing of this whole thing has gone there. And mm. now if I were to, I mean, I teach yoga philosophy and yoga history. So if I go there and I tell people what I do, people still don't know that yoga has a philosophy and a history. They're like, what does that really mean? Wow. So this is India, right? I, I'm mm. talking about parts of India. I'm talking about, you know, the the metropolitan cities. Um, there are pockets which are no, which are still sort of, you're very deeply into the, the the teachings, but there are parts of India which is completely bought into the whole capitalistic framework of of yoga, which which kind of breaks my heart, and I have to continuously either educate or just kind of like stop myself from getting burnt out and burnt up. Um, it 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 is a it is an uphill task, Faria, to um to do that. To do that, to do that work, and that's why I feel it's important to have conversations like these to um, just listen to the people who are doing the the work and uplift your work um, mm. of you know anti-colonial wellness and um, and and actually activism in these spaces. You know, um, though activism is given this 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 label that oh we have to go out and take billboard, you know, take big banner signs and that there's a place for that also and there's a place for disruption and there's a place for healing and there's a place for art and I wanted to bring that in because you know art and activism is very close to my own personal heart uh, as a dancer uh, 
Mm. I want to ask you what 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 is the what is your take on the role of art and activism? Mm. I mean, I see I see it sort of as Nina Simone I think once said it's just like, and I think a lot of black artists, black radical artists, James Baldwin is another one. It's you can't divorce, yeah, art from activism. They are the same thing, and I think that. Capitalism wants to tell you, you know, like, oh, I'm gonna like art is art. Yeah. Um, but what is art without something to say? Yeah. And art. you know, like art. Yeah, art. Yeah, art, art. yeah, exactly. Art is an expression of an idea. Um, and that idea has to can be anything. And that's mm-hmm. that's the best part of art, right? So mm-hmm. yeah. So um, any other thing that you want to talk, I know we're going to be running out of time soon. Any other thing that, you know, you want to sort of uplift in this moment about your work or any other thing that we haven't talked about? No, I'm just really enjoying the flow. So whatever else you, if you, anything else you want to ask me, I'm... Okay, great. Well, we just have a few more minutes. I want I want to close with your own practices of care. Um, you know, we're all going through such sort of tumultuous, heartbreaking times as being witnesses and we are, you know, relatively safe in in the in in the United States when we look at things that are happening in Gaza and Palestine and Sudan and Congo and you know all those places, all all those countries. Um how do you how do you practice care so that you can just be and generate all the important work and radical work? Uh, what do you do? to take care of yourself? Um, I really try, and, and this took me a couple of months, like, I mean, October, November, it wasn't until end of December, maybe, that I started to, like, realize that I had a body that needed hair. Um, yeah. I, I... I'm understanding that sometimes disassociation is a part of my my experience, yeah. you yeah. know, and that and yeah. that's okay. And yeah. as long as I return back to myself, and I'm currently in the place of returning back to myself, and that's been really nice. So it's like what that looks like is having ritual, you know, like mm-hmm. praying every day, waking up and praying every day, taking a lot of moments for silence and self reflection because. I am a deep processor and I, I think that when I'm just like going and going, going, I don't get a chance to just let the body's wisdom mm. exist, you know, and just be and guide me. I have so much body wisdom that I'm only just realizing, you know, that like how we naturally want to be, that's who we are and mm. that we shouldn't resist that being. And I think yeah, like I, I've really tried to return to that person and return to that gut, return to this place of not turning away from myself, not rejecting myself, really trying to move towards myself mm-hmm. when I feel, um, you know, I have a lot of emotion. So when I feel emotion, I don't like, instead of, you know, reprimanding myself or like, you know, being mean or critical, I, I'm really trying to move with love and mm. with a lot of care and tenderness things that I was never given and mm. I find feel like I can give them to myself and I really am worthy of that 
And mm-hmm. that has been really life-changing for me. Mm-hmm. I can do this for myself. Mm-hmm. Nobody else needs to do it for me. In fact, it's very, very worthwhile and kind of the only thing I need when I can do it for myself. Mm. I don't actually need anybody else to do it for mm. me. That's and, beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing and thank you for all your brilliant work. And, um, you know, I really look forward to seeing more things that you are um, generating, creating, rippling out into the world. And um, I'm really grateful for your time and your energy and your um, vulnerability and courage and sharing all of the things that you've shared. So thank you so much, Faria. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I want to say that I would love folks to buy Who Is Wellness For, to buy Survival Takes a Wild Imagination, and to read my Substack. It's fariharoshin.substack.com. Um, yeah, you can find me there. Fantastic. And we'll add all these links into our uh, show notes as well so that people can continue to, uh, you know, learn, learn and listen to your very important voice. Thank you so much, Faria. Thank for you. Thank you, Anjali. Thank you for listening to the Love of Yoga podcast, an offering from Accessible Yoga Association. Please support our work by becoming an ambassador or by visiting our online studio at accessibleyoga.org.